Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You are now listening to True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Good evening. In the tight-knit community of Lorraine, Ohio, a whirlwind of horror swept through as unsettling allegations surfaced. A trusted bus driver and her alleged companion accused of shattering the innocence of preschoolers in the respected Head Start program. The verdict? Lifelong prison sentences that would cast a shadow over a community and initiate an untiring quest for truth. The Edge of Doubt is a meticulously researched true crime narrative that delves into the reverberations of a sensational trial. This gripping tale is anchored in three decades of unwavering claims of innocence. As the pages turn, you'll find yourself torn between the scales of justice and the resilience of the human spirit. In a world that is quick to judge, The Edge of Doubt compels you to lend an ear to the whispers of truth. This is your invitation to dive into a powerful account that will challenge your assumptions and unveil the complexities of human nature. Read it and prepare to see the world with new eyes. The book that we're featuring this evening is The Edge of Doubt, The Trial of Nancy Smith and Joseph Allen, with my special guest, retired attorney and author, David Moraldi. Welcome to the program, and thank you very much for this interview, David Moraldi. Thank you, Dan. It's my pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure to have you and such a fascinating story. Congratulations on this book. Thank you. As you do in this book, you get right down to business and you talk about August 4th, 1994, Judge Lynette McGuff, and it involves preschool children participating in the Lorraine Head Start program. Tell us about the allegations and just a description of the people involved as you do right away. The case actually began May 7th of 1993 when Nina Zorich came home from the Head Start school. She was in the afternoon class and she told her mother that she hadn't gone to school that day, that the bus driver, Nancy Smith, had said school was closed. And she went to Nancy's house 
where she and three other Head Start children, ages four and five years old, met Nancy's so-called boyfriend, who they described as an African-American. Nancy is white. And at Nancy's home, they claimed that various sex acts were done to them by Nancy and Joseph. They also claimed that they were urinated upon and had to drink urine, which is sort of a satanic element to it. The police then got involved. And I don't know how much you want me to go into what followed up until Nancy's arrest and that of Joseph Allen, but I'm happy to get into that. Well, let's get into the investigation of these allegations. You right away introduce Detective Tom Cantu from the Lorraine Police Department. So tell us about these allegations, some more about them, and then how the, the Lorraine Police Department, how they proceeded. Well, Tom Cantu was the initial detective on the case. He interviewed, obviously, Anina Zorich. He also contacted Nancy Smith. Nancy Smith was a single mother with four children at home who lived with her parents, had no criminal record, not even a speeding ticket. He tried to ferret out if anything had happened at, at Nancy's house, canvassed the neighborhood, talked to Nancy, talked to her parents, and he had some doubts about it. And at the same time, Nina's mother, Marge Bronson, was talking to other parents in the Head Start program, and two in particular, and said, oh, my daughter said that your son was with her, your daughter was, was with her at this house, and, and then explained what had happened to her. And then, of course, Cantu had to investigate all of those elements. He eventually talked to all 11 children that were on the school bus who initially denied that anything had happened, that they liked Nancy. And eventually, she was vehement that, that she had not done these things, that she did not have a black boyfriend named Joseph, or she had a white boyfriend named Charles. And she voluntarily agreed to a polygraph, which says she was telling the truth. Right. In the meantime, Nina's parents went to a local television station. They went to the, the, the newspaper. And lo and behold, you have 15 other parents coming forward with their children. 10 of whom were not on Nancy's bus, one who didn't, wasn't even the Head Start program, but there was tremendous pressure and a hysteria in the Lorraine community. And Cantu was told he was being promoted to a desk job and the investigation was being turned over to another detective. So at, at that point, we have another detective involved who is basically stymied as well. He re-interviews the, the children. There's all kinds of conflicts in their testimony. They provide different locations as to where this happened. One boy identifies someone who the police later clear. The descriptions of this Joseph, this elusive Joseph, he's a black man, he's a white man, he's a white man with black makeup on his face. He's a, he's a young man. He's an old man with receding hairline. He has blue eyes. He has dark eyes. They're all over the place, but they identify Nancy as the person who took them to Joseph. And with all of this pressure, the uh, police continue their investigation. It lasts about six months until they are working on another case. And a man by the name of Joseph Allen, a black man, a painter, a handyman, comes to their attention. He is an African-American. He does have some white splotches on his skin, some burns. He has a prior conviction for sex abuse of a minor. He'd spent three years in prison. 
and they go to search his home and they find children's toys, clothing, books, and they think they've got their man. Now, they fail to really consider that he sometimes had a woman and her two children living with him. He had nieces and nephews, but now they finally feel that they have the elusive Joseph Allen and they can proceed. And even though they had a photo lineup where and the children could not identify him or only maybe one did, they and probably get to this later, they also had a live lineup that is just an absolute disgrace in terms of went on there in identifying Joseph Allen. You talk about the prosecutor in this case, Rosenbaum, and how he conducted himself at this trial as well. He was known as by the book. And what does by the book mean as a prosecutor in terms of an advantage for the prosecutor and the disadvantage for the defense? In 1993, 1994, there's, there's a term that we use in both civil and criminal case called discovery. It means what the other side is entitled to receive from the prosecution in preparation for the trial. And in Ohio at that time, the obligation was to turn over what is known as exculpatory evidence, that, that, that those types of things that tend to show that defendants were innocent. But there's also an aspect, they, the police take a number of, of statements, both recorded and written statements, but under the law at that time, the discovery law, those statements did not have to be turned over to the defense attorneys until that witness testified at trial. And then after that witness testified on direct examination, they go into the judge's chambers, they pull out the statement, the judge listens to it to see if there's inconsistencies, and then it's turned over to the defendant's attorneys to cross-examine that, that witness. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a huge disadvantage today. And that, and by the, when you ask the question, uh, by the book prosecutor, he follows that rule. Some prosecutors are a little more open than that, would provide those statements earlier, but you know, he was, he was within his rights not to turn those statements over, at least under the discovery rules about the inconsistency. However, if there's anything exculpatory in those statements, then he did have a duty to turn that over. And that's one of the big issues in the case. Joseph Allen has a previous record. How was it that the attorneys were not able to separate those trials, uh, given the risk of the association with a convicted felon? It's within the discretion of the judge to whether to consolidate two matters. And in this case, you know, the, the judge considers the economy of having one trial. She considered the trauma of having the children testify in two trials. And that's weighed against the prejudice, particularly here of Nancy Smith, of being in the courtroom with a convicted sex offender. And it was within the judge's discretion to do that. And that was upheld on appeal, but it obviously had very, very dire consequences for Nancy Smith. Give us some of the highlights or lowlights of this trial where Nancy testifies at this trial, but give us some of the issues that were raised at this trial that will become, again, issues that they fight for later on. Well, the trial, my description of the trial lasts for chapters and chapters. I think what comes through, and it's not evident at the time of the trial, is that several key witnesses have perjured themselves. We're talking about two parents of the child, quote unquote, victims. 
well, another bus driver who claims that she saw Joseph Allen and Nancy Smith together, which is a, a very, I don't think there's any question that it was an exaggerated, fabricated type thing. So that, right. that's certainly critical. The other is whenever you have witnesses who are four and five years old, the judge is the gatekeeper yes. on whether they, they are competent to testify. And Judge Mc, you know, can they tell the difference between right and wrong, between a lie and the truth? Will they be punished if they tell a lie? And the judge makes that determination. In her courtroom, it was a very low bar for these kids to, for her to say that they were competent to testify. And that's extremely important in any child sex abuse case. If a child testifies that these things happen, that is extremely powerful testimony. It's very hard for a jury to ignore that. And we can go into why the children's testimony was so powerful and how they can be so effective if, in fact, what they were telling hadn't happened. And that has to do with, with the interview process and how they've been conditioned and programmed to tell their stories. But I'll wait for a question from you on, on, on that one. Well, that's what you get to in part two. You introduce a journalist named Paul Fascinelli and who had joined the Chronicle in 1986. And he had a popular column, and he was intrigued by one of the people that wrote in letters to the editor, Raymond Kant. And so he had read a few of these letters, and he was intrigued. Tell us about what interested him about those letters, and as a result, what did he do? Well, Paul it was somewhat of an outspoken journalist. He had his detractors, and he had his fans. But one of the letters to the editor directed him towards a child psychologist who had written a book about how you question young children about sex abuse. And he uh, got copies of the statements, the interviews of the children, you know, the original interviews, which were disclosed, you know, at trial and were available. And he did some research and sent them to two child psychologists who were known for their expertise in ferreting out whether the interviews were tainted or contaminated. Right. And when he sent them to the, the two psychologists, they both agreed to review them at no, no charge. And both were appalled by the way the children had been questioned. They didn't believe that the police had, and the social workers had broken the rules of interrogation on purpose, but they had nonetheless, they were some of the worst interviews that they had ever seen. And there's a proper way to interview children about sex abuse, four and five-year-olds. The first is you don't ask leading questions because the children are smart enough. They want to please the person who's questioning them, and they will usually agree with a leading question. You don't repeat questions, you know, until, I mean, the child will eventually change the answer. And you don't want a questioner who has bias, a confirmation bias. There's these things happen, and he or she is trying to confirm that. And so all of these things happened. You don't reward the, the child. Oh yeah, you can have a can of pop if you answer this question. You know, if you don't answer this, your sister is going to be attacked by, by Joseph. The proper way to do it is to ask open-ended questions. You, do, you should develop a rapport with the child and say, hey, I understand things have been happening at the school. Tell me what's happened and don't leave out any details. And then you let let the child talk. That's called spontaneous recall. And that is the most reliable information that anyone 
can get. And you only, you try to limit your number of interviews. One is, is great, two is probably adequate. But in this case, we have four statements of Nina Zorich that, are, that were recorded and there are probably more. And as they continue, they become more and more unreliable. And that's exactly what happened in this case. Now you're talking is called part three, and you talk about the civil case, the incredible civil case in July 23rd, 1996. And with and you introduce a character, William Thomas Locke, the executive director of Lorain County Community Action Agency, that uh, the organization that oversaw the Lorain County Head Start program. Right, and the bus drivers, yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, so tell us what he believes about this Nancy Smith and Joseph Allen and what what he does. Well, he was, when the verdicts came out, he was outraged. I mean, he could not believe this had happened. First of all, there were certain safeguards that were involved in the Head Start program. Nancy was, you know, the allegations were that Nancy would leave three or four children on the bus, not let them get off at the school, and then take them to Joseph's house. Well, they had, an, they, besides Nancy on the bus, there was an aide. So they had to argue that it happened on a day when there wasn't an aide. And sometimes if there wasn't an aide, there was, you know, a parent who was on board. So, and the teachers came out from the school and met each bus. They were unloaded one at a time. He just couldn't believe that, that this had happened. And he was roundly criticized in the newspapers for not agreeing with the jury verdict. You know, and you know, one newspaper actually called for his, his, his resignation because he, the jury heard all the evidence and obviously he had not. He enters the story when, no surprise, for the parents, after there have been these convictions and the appeals have been exhausted for Nancy Smith, they file civil lawsuits against the Head Start program, Lorraine County Community Action Agency, which you said was the umbrella organization, claiming that they're responsible, they were negligent, that they were negligent in hiring, supervising, and retaining Nancy Smith, that they, they failed then to protect the children from these awful things that happened. And this then became a very long, drawn-out lawsuit, which had an unfortunate ending <laughs> for those of us, uh, at least from my, my perspective. Uh, they, the, the insurance company eventually capitulated and offered settlements of $1.5 to each of, of four families. Now, you've got to understand the issue in this case was not whether Nancy Smith and Joseph Allen had done these things. That had been established in the criminal case. And so, you know, it was an open question as to whether that can be relitigated. The question was whether the head start of the agency was put on notice of some things that had happened regarding Nancy that, that should have alerted them that, that she was going to do these things. And the insurance company, after I can't recall, it was eight or nine years of, of litigation, finally wanted to get the book, get the case off their books and, and, and they paid on it. You talk in part four, you introduced the Ohio Innocence Project, July 2006 to 2007, and it's based in Cincinnati. And you introduce two important characters, Mark Godsey, who's the founder, and Jenny Carroll, former public defender, and a couple students, students in their second year, Chef and Madonna. So tell us a little bit about what happens with the Ohio Innocence Project being involved, getting involved, and Amber Bronish. There are a number of chapters there, but the Innocence Project got involved when all of the appeals had been exhausted for Nancy Smith uh, several years thereafter. 
that had come to their attention through another investigator, someone that had been hired by the family who worked for them trying to find exculpatory evidence right after the, the trial. And he, he continued to work for the family for free. He had a lot of reliability for the Ohio Innocence Project. And when he brought this case to them, Mark Godsey reviewed it and was convinced that, you know, miscarriage of justice had occurred. He read those statements of the children's statements that showed contamination. And also, and we haven't talked about it, the children at trial had no difficulty pointing out who Joseph Allen was in the courtroom. However, it came to light through Facinelli's article that there was a videotape of that lineup to, to show the, the children and how they reacted. And there were seven children went in, four absolutely could not identify him. One looked as if the father had whispered in his ear as to it's number two. And then we have Nina Zorich and her mother, eight, nine agonizing minutes where, you know, she identifies the wrong person. She's given second and third chances. The mother points at points says, oh, it's this person. It's just an incredible videotape. It's available online if, if people want to watch that. But anyway, Godsey had seen that and he obviously met with Nancy and became very much uh, an advocate for her. Because there were no appeals left, her best chance of getting out of prison was through parole. She was going to have a parole hearing. One of the difficulties with the parole hearing was that they want to know, they, the parole board wants to know that you've been rehabilitated, which means that you have admitted that you've done these things, you've taken a sex offender course, and you're ready to be reintegrated into, into society. Nancy will not do that. And, you know, they put together a great document for the parole board. It shows the likelihood that, that the jury had gotten it wrong. It also showed, you know, what an exemplary person she had been in prison, the things that she had done, but she would not admit to these crimes. And she knew that that would probably end her opportunity for parole. And in fact, her, her parole was initially what was denied. And then you asked me about Amber Bronish, and I'll go into that. You know, after her parole was denied, Amber, who had been 15, I think at the time her mom had been convicted, was now an adult, was her, was her champion. She was always peppering the attorneys and you know, prodding them to do things. And she decided she had to do something on her own. So she contacted the Lorraine police, not expecting anything to happen. But the police chief who'd been involved in, in been in charge of the detectives when her mom was convicted, that's a person that I know. He's since passed away, Cell Rivera very warm, a good individual. And mm -hmm. he said, come on in. He gave her, you know, you know, let's talk about it. And he suggested to her that she go to the alleged victims who were now adults and see if they would admit that you know, these things hadn't happened. And he even gave her a tape recorder you know, so she could secretly yes. tape record, which <laughs> is allowed in Ohio. Only one wow. person has to consent to that. That didn't work out. And then he said he would help her with filing some paperwork for a clemency. Then when the police chief was contacted by Mark Godsey from the Ohio Innocence Project, he was not as cooperative. And Amber went in and tape recorded some of their conversations wow. in hopes that, that that would speed her mother's release. Let's use this as an opportunity to stop to hear from our sponsor. My wife, Lisa, and I were talking recently about a favorite restaurant of ours and one of our favorite meals there, seafood risotto. And we've all talked about how great it would be to be able to have delicious meals like that at home. Well, 
Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service, delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week and cheaper than other delivery options. We ordered meals with a Mediterranean dietary preference. All of the meals arrive fresh, never frozen, in packaging that keeps meals fresh in the fridge for up to seven days. All of the meals we ordered were absolutely delicious. Some of our favorites were the chipotle lime salmon with Brussels sprouts by Chef Ruben Garcia, a spicy, perfect paleo dish. It's amazing what Ruben does with salmon. We also really enjoyed the rainbow chicken and pasta salad with Kalamata olives and feta by Chef Nelson Bruzella. And also, we loved Chef John DeLucy's Mom's Sunday Rigatoni with fennel sausage and meatballs, a tangy marinara sauce, and yes, a spicy Italian sausage. Cook Unity is a step ahead and a step above any other meal delivery service we've tried. And it's great supporting local chefs and suppliers. There is no cooking required to have chef-quality dining at home. With hundreds of dishes to choose from, with a constantly updated menu, and seven different dietary options including paleo, Mediterranean, keto, and vegan, and filters for soy, nut, and dairy options. Pick as few as four or as many as 16 meals per week. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com murder or enter code murder before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week using code murder or by going to cookunity.com slash murder. Now you introduce Judge James Burge, December 20th, 2008, and you write that he's considered a maverick. Tell us about what the maverick judge does. All right. Jim Burge, at age 59, decides to run for Judge McGuff's seat. Judge McGuff was retiring. Jim Burge had been a criminal defense attorney his entire life, and he won that election. He brought a new perspective to that judgeship. Early in his, uh, in, in his judgeship, he contested Ohio's lethal injection and found that it was unconstitutional as, as cruel and unusual punishment. He was a completely different personality than Judge McGuff, right. uh, who relished her reputation as a tough-on-crime uh, judge. Judge Jack Bradley, who we haven't talked about, who was uh, Nancy's original attorney and was still working on her case, even though the Innocence Project is involved, filed a motion based on a technicality in the sentencing order. There had been a recent Ohio Supreme Court case that said when somebody is found guilty, the journal entry has to say how they were found guilty. Was right. it by the judge? Was it by a jury? Had they pled? And in Judge McGuff's journal entry, she just simply said that she'd been found guilty. And most people thought, well, you know, this is no big deal. You know, you just have to amend that entry and say that she's found guilty by a jury and the original sentencing would be in effect. But Judge Burge looked at it that, hey, this was never finalized. This case, this case is still open to me. I can resentence her if I want. And it was a novel idea. So he decided to read the entire transcript, read the children's statements to see what would be a proper sentence. And in so doing, 
he had no confidence in the verdict. And right. to the surprise of everyone, he gathered everyone together and said, I am issuing an acquittal for Nancy Smith and Joseph Allen. And he had, he had said, and in doing so, he had said, well, you know, there, there have been some changes in the law since 1994. Number one, the parents could testify as to what their children said about the sex acts, which happened in this case. And that, that rule was later found to be unconstitutional right. because they, they said that you have a the defendant has a right to confront the actual person who said that, not, not this, this hearsay. Sure. The other thing is he looked at the statements and he said, these, these are all exculpatory. Why weren't these turned over to the defense attorneys? And when he <laughs> when you exclude those things or provide for those things, there was no basis for a conviction. And then this set in progress appeals that went all the way to the Ohio Supreme Court as to whether he had the right to do what he did. And the ultimate answer was they said no. But for the interim, Nancy Smith and, and Joseph Allen are freed. Yes. Incredible. Yes. Yes, they're, they're free for several years, and but there's a tremendous pressure on Judge Burge to set a hearing to correct the journal entry and send them back to prison, which he basically refuses to do. And so the, the, then the Ohio Innocence Project says, what can we do for, for Nancy? And they, they really do a two-pronged attack. They talk to the prosecutor's office about perhaps arranging a sentencing agreement that could override the, the sentences. And two, they have a petition for clemency that they file with uh, down in Columbus to try to prove that you know, this was a wrongful conviction and they should grant her clemency, grant her her freedom. And the Ohio Innocence Project in Cincinnati enlisted a top-notch New York City law firm, Davis Polk, that does pro bono work, who put together an incredible brief you know, with, you know, 300 pages of exhibits. And then right. they had a full hearing with the 11 member parole board with the New York attorney putting on the testimony of a psychologist showing the unreliability of the interviews. Tom Cantu testified. They had two of the daughters testify. And it was a very impressive performance, but only two of the uh, 11 members seemed to be in favor they would make a recommendation to the judge as to whether to grant clemency. And that can take months. And time was running out. The other surprising witness at the clemency hearing was Judge James Burge, who said he was convinced that she was innocent. Now, what wow. that meant, he no longer could preside, preside over her case. He had to recuse himself. And so once he had testified, then the Supreme Court brought in someone else, a visiting judge from another county. And the, the Innocence Project, Mark Godsey knew that time was of the essence. And, and Sharon Katz, who was the attorney from New York, worked out a sentencing agreement where Nancy was, there were, there were certain findings that, you know, the jury, the jury had found her guilty. They changed it to gross sexual imposition, sentenced to 12 years. She'd already served 15 years, so she was free. Not so lucky for Joseph Allen, the, the judge that had been appointed, they had been, apparently worked out a similar deal for him that he would be free on time served, but because he had a prior record, the prosecutor had had him examined by psychologists and they thought that he should be supervised once he was free. And the judge said no. And so he in insisted that although he reduced it to one count of rape and a, a sentence of 25 years, Joseph Allen had not served <laughs> that. And he was going back to prison and did go back to prison uh, until we get to part five. <laughs> yes, yes. 
And, and, and before that, you introduce another character, of course, Rocco Bronson Jr., brother of Nina Zorick. Right. That's in part five. That's correct. Yeah. You know, we've got, we've got Nancy Free in Lorraine. We have, we have Joseph Allen in prison. And I'll tell you, that's what intrigued me about the case initially. I mean, to start writing about it because I thought, here we have Joseph Allen in prison, a black man. We have Nancy Smith free, a white woman. You know, that was one of the things that, mm -hmm. one of the reasons I got the transcript and, and got into this case. And when I write my book, I write the first chapter and my last chapter. And when I had, and I was writing it, and my last chapter had been Joseph Allen going back to prison. Yeah. Well, little did I know that about <laughs> a couple months after I wrote that, Rocco Bronson contact, he was contacted Mark Godsey late at night and said, Hey, my mom coached my sister to say those things. She promised her a trip to Disney World. She said she was going to get paid. And she's trying to do that with me and trying to gain custody of my daughter, her granddaughter. She's accused my wife of abusing our daughter. She accused that, that this happened during a supervised visit with children's services with the potential that there would be a claim against children's services. And so Mark Godsey got a Virginia Braden, who was an investigator, PhD, to look at those allegations and others and file a motion for a new trial based on newly discovered evidence. You talk about Rocco Bronson, police ask him because he says he was only six years old when this occurred back in 94, in that who else would support some of the things he said? Who does he say that supports? He said, my father will, my father will. And at the time, his father was divorced from Marge Bronson. He had the Rocco Bronson senior had two children with Marge and he would come for visitation to pick them up. And he, he you know, he overheard, I mean, he, his, his ex-wife told him, yeah, I'm going to get paid for this. One of the amazing things about Rocco Bronson's affidavit and his, his testimony is that he said that his, his mom had set up almost like a school in the basement, you know, with desks where the kids would recite what they were supposed to say. And they had a picture of Joseph Allen and they would advance from desk to desk, you know, the better that they performed. And he also claimed that some of the things that were allegations of, of sex abuse were things that had, he claimed had happened to him. Now, the other side of the coin is Rocco Bronson Jr. had drug issues. The prosecutor was investigating whether he had planted drugs on the, in his mother's home. I mean, he, he was not a, he was, he was not your perfect witness. However, the Lorain County Sheriff's Department had investigated the claim about whether uh, the granddaughter was sexually abused by her mother. And they found that, that Marge Bronson had been coaching her they had left the videotape on one point where the little girl was practicing how to cry. So as it would later turn out, you know, Mark Gazzi was able to argue, hey, we're not, you don't have to rely on Rocco. Look at, you know, she's doing the same thing. You've got the Lorraine County Sheriff's Department saying that, that right. she coached these children. And, you know, this is bombshell evidence. We couldn't possibly have had that in 1994. And that's, and that's a test for newly discovered evidence. You know, it has to be something that would, really shift the needle and was not discoverable in 1994. And that was their argument. You introduced J.D. Tomlinson when you talk about this new evidence claim. Tell us about J.D. Tomlinson. Well, again, 
And when you talk about Jim Burge taking over for Judge McGuff, you also talk about J.D. Tomlinson, a criminal defense attorney, defeating the current or the, the past prosecutor, Dennis Will. And so it was, a, you know, Dennis Will had always been a prosecutor, been a police officer. And Jim, one of his, one of J.D. Tomlinson's campaign promises was he was going to look into the Head Start case again. And right. indeed, once he was elected, he had two investigators, two, both were retired detectives, one from the Lorraine Police Department, one from the Elyria, who went through the transcript, went through all of the statements, the police reports, talked with a number of people, and they came back to Tomlin and said, these people are innocent. So, you know, that's happening at the same time that Mark Gotze is receiving this information from Rock Bronson. So tell us about what happens next in this fight for, again, for justice. The judge, there's a, you know, Judge Burgess is, is no longer in that courtroom that had been Judge McGuff's. Judge Burge had left and Judge Cook had been elected. So this case came to him and Judge Cook had a, a pretty extensive background. He'd been a, a prosecutor. He'd also been in, in a law firm that included uh, Jack Bradley. Nancy Smith's attorney, but he understands that he he wants he wants to hold a hearing and make sure he gets this right as to whether he should grant a new trial. And most thought that this was going to be you know the, the prosecutor was just, you know was just, this was going to be an easy thing because the prosecutor was not contesting you know and in fact the prosecutor sent a letter said we believe she's innocent. But the former prosecutor, Jonathan Rosenbaum, who was no longer a prosecutor, but in private practice, was hired by two of the alleged victims to contest this motion for a new trial. And in Ohio, we have something right. called Marcy's Law, which was actually a constitutional amendment that gave victims certain rights. And it, it allowed them to be heard at any hearing. And John Rosenbaum uh, strenuously objected to this, this motion for a new trial. He thought that there should be a special prosecutor appointed, that Tomlinson could not be fair. And, part, and that was partly because Tomlinson had hired Jim Burge to be his chief of staff. And he said, well, you know, he's already, he should, there's a conflict of interest here. Fortunately for Nancy Smith and Joseph Allen, Judge Cook had like 25 years of experience dealing with ethical claims and was on a, a state board that investigated claims against judges and lawyers. And he said, no, this doesn't apply. Prosecutor's office is different than a, a law office. And uh, Jim Burge is excluded from participating, but no one else is. But he became quite heated battle. And J Judge uh, John Rosenbaum claimed, hey, they can't, you know, I, I, you know, I don't have a conflict of interest in, in this case. And the judge said, well, I think you do. You represented the state of Ohio. How can you be here arguing a position contrary to your former client? And Rosenbaum said, well, I'm right. just saying that, you know, I'm putting forth an argument that is consistent with uh, what we argued back in 94. The judge said, well, can a client change his or her mind? Can, you know, <laughs> can, does a former yeah. attorney have the right to, to tell a client what it can or cannot do? And ultimately, John Rosenbaum withdrew that he had a conflict of interest. and. The last chapter of the book is Judge Cook rules that they have, they're entitled to a new trial. And the prosecutor gets up and tells the judge, we are not going to be pressing charges. We want this case dismissed 
dismissed with prejudice. We apologize to Nancy Smith and Joseph Allen for this ill-conceived prosecution. And then Nancy Smith gets up and she says that she, it is a statement against, you know, Marge Bronson. She says, you don't know what you did to, to me. I'm not the only victim. My whole family were victims. You, you took me away from my children in their, in, a, in their most crucial period and wanted to be known that what you did was, was a horrible, horrible thing. With that, the judge granted the motion to dismiss and uh, the case was over 28 years later. Let's use this as an opportunity to hear these messages. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. You say that it took that 27 years to get this, this, the kind of exoneration that Nancy Smith had wanted all the time. We spoke earlier and you talk about the plea agreement that Nancy was given early on and, and the, what she would have done in the parole hearing if she, was, if she were smarter. Tell us a little bit more about Nancy and when we talked about that it isn't exactly an exoneration that she was looking for that she received. Well, it's, a, it's really a question of, you know, what is an exoneration? The, the University of Michigan keeps the role of all the, the people who have been exonerated. And she and Joseph Allen are on that list. Some say that you're not ex- completely exonerated until there's been a case for wrongful imprisonment filed and that that is concluded. And in, in a wrongful imprisonment lawsuit, the first step is you file something in the county court to here is Lorain County, and it's tried to the judge, and he determines whether you were innocent of those charges. And once there's that finding, and there's a second part to the case, and it is transferred to the Ohio Court of Claims in Columbus, who then makes a decision as to what award of damages that person is entitled to. At this point, that case is still pending. I think think for all intents and purposes, both she and Joseph Allen have been exonerated, but compensation for their wrongful imprisonment is is still in the offing. In this book and throughout, you provide for the reader the reasons why you believe that this conviction occurred in the first place. She was given 30 years minimum, 90 years maximum. He was given a life sentence. And so all throughout this book, Nancy, you mentioned just her statement at the very end, but the the terrible time she had in prison, the way she was looked, attorneys when they came to visit her, the despair that she she had over this conviction and that she would never get out and, and see her, her children again. You put the reasoning for this, and we talk about those detectives, the initial detectives that conducted those interviews, and the 
overzealous, to say the least, Prosecutor Rosenbaum. Tell us how you believe that this really was perpetrated and Nancy Smith and Joseph Allen were wrongfully convicted. Well, one of the things that I always try to do when I was a trial lawyer and talking to the jury, I didn't like to preach to them and tell them this is why they should find one way. I think uh, both a trial lawyer and an author leads the, the reader with presenting to them the facts and allowing that reader to draw their own conclusions. That being said, I'm not aware of anybody who's read my book who doesn't believe that this was a, a grave miscarriage of justice. Although I, I'm careful not to express my opinion. But what did happen here? First of all, we are told that we have you know, the best criminal system of justice in the world, which we do. We have all of these sure. protections, right against self-incrimination, you know, presumption of innocence, all these things. So we believe that Innocent people aren't convicted. You know, the, in law school, we're, we're told, given the mantra, it's better that 10 guilty persons go free than one innocent person be convicted. But what we're discovering, particularly with DNA evidence, that these people who have been, you know, convicted and exhausted all, all their appeals, there's DNA, DNA evidence that shows that they didn't do it. So we're suddenly aware that our system does make mistakes. And why does it make mistakes? And I can't talk to you on, on a macro level. I can only talk to you about this case. And I think what I'm trying to show through this case is it can happen to anyone. If it can happen to Nancy Smith, it can happen to you. And I think that that's an important message. You know, it's just not the story. It's just, it's a cautionary tale that, you know, we just have to be vigilant. But to, you know, to try to answer your, your question, you know, a, a little more with a little more specificity, this was a perfect storm. I mean, when the system fails, it's not just one thing that goes wrong. It's usually four or five or six things that go wrong. You have to right. look at, at the police investigation. You know, was it shoddy? Was it biased? You have to look at the prosecutor. Did the prosecutor follow the guidelines in the law in terms of turning over evidence? Was the judge fair? Was the you know was the judge biased? You know, did he or she favor one side or over the other? Were the defense attorneys prepared? You know, was there perjured testimony, or was or is there a witness who later recants? And then you add this final element in this case, which is these horrible, horrible allegations of child sex abuse, and there's a hyst hysteria, a pressure on the jury. I've had prosecutors tell me that if they can get a child to testify that sex abuse happened, the case is over. You know, it's, that, it's extremely yeah. powerful testimony. And that's why in this case, it was extremely important for the defense to have an expert to come in and explain how the, the children's memories can be molded and programmed. And once story has been cemented, it's as real to that child as any other memory. So. Uh, it's a perfect storm. And I really have highlighted, you know, six different things that, that, that probably led to it. And each case is different, but certainly there were, there were failures in a lot of sectors. It's very interesting, too, that you're able to, in the end of the book, sort of wrap up this ultimate motivation for this Marge Bronson coming forth, which was just money. And so it explains so many things that aren't wrapped up to the very end with this Marge Bronson. Yeah. Well, she's, she's an interesting character. 
I think she, you know, I've, I've never met her, never talked with her. You know, she's a very attractive woman. I think she was a very persuasive woman and she could really excite others and convince them that certain things had happened. I think one of the tragedies in this case is that at the trial, it was never disclosed that she was a convicted felon herself that had sold cocaine out of her house. That was information that the defense should have had. And they used that as a basis for a new trial. However, the prosecutor said, I asked her whether she had any convictions. It was a federal conviction. And she said that she hadn't. And there were some other things, you know, dealing with Jack Bradley's involvement in that case that, you know, they were able to say, well, you should have known that she was a convicted felon. But I think that would have tremendously discredited her, discredited her if it had been known at trial. It's also an interesting case in that it demonstrates how when she went to other parents and reformed their child's memories to line up with her own daughter's memories, it's very interesting that it seems very comparable to some of the other cases where this hysteria doesn't start off right away, but bounce and it grows as a result. Yeah, yeah. No question from the 1980s to the early 1990s, there was a proliferation of these daycare cases. And, you know, in fact, the McMartin case in California was, you know, 1984, seven years, no one was convicted. There were convictions on almost more than half of them. They were eventually overturned. But it usually started with one parent, and in the McMartin case, it, she was a paranoid schizophrenic, uh, you know, that made these allegations. And then the way that the children were questioned, I mean, it, 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 at one point there were eight people that had been, that were arrested, you know, and with the satanic rites, I mean, it was something that was not just, and it happened in Lorraine, it happened all over the, all over the country. And I mean, the surprising thing is there was plenty of literature on it at the time of uh, the these things happen in Lorraine, you would think that the police, the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorneys, you know, should have been aware of what had happened in these other cases and learned from them. Mm -hmm. In fact, in one of the books that Facinelli referred to in his articles was by, it was in 1990, it was, you know, Sex Abuse Hysteria, the, the Salem Witch Trials Revisited. That's a 1990 book, you know, right. showing, you know, just how unreliable these cases were, but it was as if uh, Lorraine was uh, in a vacuum here. But they, 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 they weren't looking at what, what had happened and had been debunked throughout the country. It's an extraordinary story you chronicle, too, because of all the really extraordinary efforts from so many people, you know, law firms conducting the case pro bono and some really unlikely allies and surprising allies as well in this. I like, like any book, it has its good guys and bad guys, and I'm not going to go into the bad guys. I'll let the reader make that decision mm -hmm. themselves, but you can go right down the list. Paul Facinelli, uh, the journalist, mm -hmm. Judge Burge, Innocence Project, the people involved there, Tom Cantu, the um, uh, original detective, Jack Bradley, who didn't give up on his client, and Judge Chris Cook for um, finally putting an end to it. So, And there are, there are lesser good characters as well, but a lot, a lot of people were involved, but it's, it's a tragedy that it took so long to write this injustice. It's interesting, too, the role of the media immediately not inflaming the public and inflaming the case as a result, but the Fascinelli and the Chronicle and their series really helped to counter and were, well, really counter the, the, the disturbance that the earlier media accounts created. Well, unfortunately, by the time the Facinelli articles came out and Joseph Allen and, and Nancy Smith were in prison and the appeals had been mm -hmm. exhausted so that 
all that they could do was try to change public opinion and perhaps apply some pressure yeah. for the prosecutor's office to look at the case again. But, you know, once someone's been convicted and it's gone through the system, our criminal justice system is loath to correct a mistake. Yeah. Uh, and the earlier media attention that you mentioned was extremely damaging. I mean, it pushed the police to continue on with a case that they should have dropped. And it caused all of these other children to come forward, two of whom hadn't been contacted by Marge Grondin, but became part of the case. But that was all because of the, that earlier media frenzy. Yes, absolutely. It's an incredible case and an incredible book. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about The Edge of Doubt, The Trial, Nancy Smith and Joseph Allen. For those people that might want to take a look at further at this case and your other work, do you have a website that they might take a look at and do you do any social media? They can go to my website, davidmoraldi.com. I also have a Facebook page. It's you know, David Moraldi author. I will say my, my first book, if I can give a little plug for that, I did have a personal sure. connection. It was my dad, a murder trial that my dad handled back in the 60s. Wow. Man was accused of drowning his wife in scalding water. I found his file decades after he died, and it cast a spell on me. That, 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 that first book won an International Book Award, and right now Lionsgate is looking at it in terms of a miniseries. So if they're interested in that wow. book, and then I'll put a plug in if I can for my second book. Edge of Malice, sure. my wife's best friend, was shot at a Burger King while she was going through the drive-through. She was an attorney, and it's her struggle through the, the criminal and civil justice system, I was involved in a civil case against the uh, Burger King where this happened, but it's her journey and how she eventually deals with the anger and the hate and the fear towards her assailant. And that, that's, that's a fascinating story. Even if you don't read my book, uh, if you read another account of it, she's another courageous, courageous woman. Yeah, very, very interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, David Moraldi, for coming on and talking about The Edge of Doubt, the trial of Nancy Smith and Joseph Allen. Thank you so much for this interview, and you have a great evening and good night. Thank you. Thank you. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.